So Philippians chapter one, starting in verse 27, um, we're kind of picking up from where we left off last week. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, in this little section here, this, this is kind of a, a little bit of a section where there's a pivot that happens between uh, the section that Paul has previously written in his kind of introduction um, and Paul's or, or um, the life of the Philippians and, and Paul's life and theirs. And so um, now he's kind of jumping in a little bit more specifically to speak about the gospel and how they ought to live in response to the gospel. And so he starts off um, with this command to the Philippians and likewise to all of us here in verse 27. He says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. As he opens up um, in verse 27, there's, um, there's one still theme that he's wanting to, to get at here, and it's that of unity for the Christians. How they should operate in this season, in this time, as they are experiencing um, hardship and difficulties, as they are experiencing um, outsiders who are taking advantage of them, as they are experiencing difficulties in their church. He wants them to have this greater unity. And so he lays out um, some things in order for them to achieve it. And I want you to see here that, what, that all of the things that Paul asks of anyone throughout the scriptures, like not only in the book of Philippians, but basically at any point, at any time, in any other location, all of Paul's commands, everything that he asks flow out of one single thing, one single place, and that is the gospel of Christ, Right. That's what he gets at again and again and again, no matter what book he's in, no matter who he's writing to. It's always flowing out of the gospel. And the reason for that is because the gospel does uh, a couple of things for us. It declares the state of, of uh, Jesus's rule and reign over all things, right? It gives us the standard of like, what is the context in which we exist? How are we supposed to process the world? But the gospel proclaims first and foremost that Christ came here, God became a man, he lived upon the earth, completely sinless, navigating all of the temptations that Satan would throw at him, navigating every circumstance and situation in life, moving through all of that, um, yet without sin, going to the cross for our sake, to pay for our sin, substituting at the cross for us, and shedding his blood that we might be covered in the blood of Christ and made clean, going into the grave and defeating Satan, sin, and death there, conquering it and rising again on the third day and ascending to the Father. The gospel proclaims that Christ is Lord and that he is exalted. And when he, when he was raised for our justification, then it brings us into the family of God. And so it says what, what Christ has done, but then what it also does is it gives Christians then the motive, the pattern by which we should then live, right? Because if Christ has done this for us and we are then a part of his family, then we ought to live in his way. We ought to follow in his pattern, right? <coughs> Excuse me. 
And so the gospel says what Christ has done, who we are in Christ, how we should then live. And so Paul says here, as he opens this, our manner of living should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It should be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, your translation might say something a little bit different. Um, there's a couple other translations that say this, and I think it's helpful. They say um, that above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, right? So it gives us a parallel phrasing there uh, that we should live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Another translation says that above all, above anything else, right? It states like in every circumstance, in every sort of way, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, right? And I think that is a particularly helpful phrase when we look at the book of Philippians, because what, were the, what was the Philippian church? They were a bunch of Christians who were living in a Roman colony, right? It was a group of people who were citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but then we're also living within the earthly confines of this uh, Roman city, right? Uh, that, that they were under the rule of Rome. And so as they, as they were here and members of the city, these things had a lot of uh, implications for them. It said what it meant to be a citizen of Rome. It would have had an impact that Here's our rights and responsibilities. Here's what we have to do if we are going to be members of that city. But then as Christians, we have these rights and responsibilities. We belong to a new city there's, which holds our primary allegiance, right? The kingdom of God. There's an eternal city that, that we enter into. Uh, the writer of Hebrews put it this way in uh in Hebrews chapter 11, speaking of Abraham, he said, by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, right? So there's a temporary city that he's in, right? But then he says in verse 10, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 10, for he is looking forward to the city that has foundations, right? His tent doesn't has, have foundations. There's nothing. He's just upon, upon the earth, right? But the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 11, verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God, a better city, something that awaits for God's people. And so he says here uh, that this is our city that we wait for. Uh, if you fast forward to the end of the story in Revelation chapter 21, right, we find that we hear a loud voice, 21 verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God will himself will be with them uh, as their God, right? And this is God dwelling with his people. But look what it says in verse two. As I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, right? So this is God dwelling with his people in his own city, which he has built an eternal city. And so there's this idea, this understanding that we are, uh, citizens of a new city. And so Paul wants to emphasize this for the Philippians. Be good citizens in the city that you are in, uh, church, right? We ought to be members of our city that we live in, that we ought to be good stewards of the citizenship that we have here on earth. But above all, we're told by Paul, 
Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, right? Above our secondary citizenship that's here upon the earth and the city that you live in and the nation that you live in, above all, we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, right? Because when you get to, when you get to uh, the book of Revelation, when you see uh, the, the end of the story and we're all standing before God in his own city, right? What does it say? That the nations are gathered before him. It doesn't say particular nations. It just says that there's a bunch of people from different backgrounds. That's all it is. But there's no nationalities. There's, there's no borders. There's no countries. It's just we are all God's people before him. None of those things become relevant when we are with the Lord. And because that is our primary citizenship in heaven, right? And so we should be able to conduct ourselves as citizens of God's kingdom, of the heavenly city uh, here upon the earth. And this is what Paul asks of the Philippians and what he asks of us, that we ought to uh, live lives, he says here, that are, are worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that we should live in keeping with the gospel. And then he continues in verse <clears throat> uh, in verse 27, he says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. So Paul expects to visit them soon. And he mentions this in, um, in a later chapter, he mentions his plan to send Timothy to him to kind of give them some news about what's going to happen. And he's hope, hopefully you know, trying to travel to them. But what he's doing there is he's also saying, my expectation is that you're living as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And I'm going to come and visit you soon. I'm looking forward to that. And I'm looking forward to seeing your progress. I'm looking forward to seeing this lived out within the church. And what he's doing is he's putting in place some accountability. And this is the point and purpose of our church together, that we are here to help each other uh, live as members of this heavenly city, that we are to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're here to help each other along this way. And so he's letting them know, like, I'm going to be checking in on you. Um, but then he lists out three specific aspects um, of what it means to be members of this heavenly city and that he expects to see, that he expects to hear of when he comes to them, right? So he says this, so whether I come to you, uh, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are, here we go, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, right? That you are standing firm in one spirit. Again, now he's getting to this idea of unity. He's getting to this idea to be firmly committed that they have conviction about what they are doing. He says that we need to pull together and we need to move in one direction with one heart. We need to uh, stand firm, which he'll get to in a little bit. We need to stand firm in uh, our convictions and know that the enemy is trying to come against us, trying to destroy us, right? This is the same sort of, um, you know, this, this attack, this hostility is the same type of thing that uh, Satan tries to, to pull out. You know, in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, we're told 
be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's on the hunt. He's looking to take us down. He's looking to attack us, right? It says, but then resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world, right? We're not the only ones who are experiencing this hardship. We're not the only ones who are experiencing this difficulty. There are other people who are going through these same things. But we should be aware. We should be sober-minded. We should be watchful, knowing that these attacks are coming, right? And this is the attitude of Satan. We're told in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the thief, Satan, comes to only to steal, to kill, and to destroy. To steal, to kill, and destroy. There's nothing good there, Right? Satan wants to do absolutely as much damage as possible while not letting you know that he's doing damage, right? But by contrast, we find that Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. He makes it clear what he wants to do. He's trying to lead us into following him. And so we have to be aware of how the enemy is going to attack us so that we might have unity. Paul says that you should stand firm in one spirit. And so we have to be aware of the enemy's designs his traps how he brings this out this is what paul says in second corinthians chapter two and so paul brings this out and he says uh you are standing firm in one spirit that we ought to close ranks that we ought to be together where we are linked arm in arm we have this duty as members of the household of faith to go into this battle with one another and we're standing firm right in one spirit that's the spirit of god at work in the life of the believer. So it's not just us, but it's the Holy Spirit with us, right? And the Holy Spirit is the basis for this unity. In 1 John, we find that everyone who has the Spirit is a child of God. And so we have this unity in uh, being a child of God. Um, Paul elaborates further in his letter to first uh, or to letter to the Corinthians, um, in his first letter there in chapter 12, and also in Ephesians 2. He lays this out, but it's the spirit of God that is the source of power that brings us unity, that helps us to remain um, strong in the face of trials, in the face of suffering, in the face of opposition. And so he says uh, in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side, striving side by side. Here's that, that arms linked picture, right? We're together. Striving side by side, this, this uh, unity that we have when we are together, it, um, as we are together, united around the spirit of God, then we are able to have one mind for the faith of the gospel, right? And in Paul's context, there are some here, members of the church, who are squabbling and fighting against each other than ra rather than fighting for uh, the faith of the gospel. Remember, Paul says that there are some who preach Christ from, from rivalry, from selfish ambition. Uh, there are those who are, are having their own agenda. And then there are those who are doing it from a true heart. But Paul says here that we need to have one mind for the faith of the gospel. We need to pursue uh, this together for the faith of the gospel. 
Now, what he wants here, as we said earlier, is that he wants this group to be united both in their communication and their proclamation of the gospel of what Christ has done, right? What he has done, and then how it shapes their conduct, their pattern for life, what they should do as a result of understanding the truth of the gospel. And so when we come together with this understanding of what Christ has done, and then it and, and, and as we read in the scriptures, we find that the love of Christ compels us. It compels us. It, it moves us to respond to God. Then we are a people who then want to walk with Christ. We want to uh, see him for who he is, and then we want to obey him. And so we ought to focus on the proclamation of the gospel by our lives, by living out the truth of the gospel, by having this one mind, one spirit. And it's important for us to kind of uh, keep an eye on that because that is uh, the way that we can know that we are on track, that we can move together in the right perspective, the right attitude. <clears throat> you know, this week um, I was able to get out for for a couple runs. And one of the things that is always ends up being like very beneficial along the way in the runs is I, I don't know, I feel like I ended up getting like more random, like spiritual thoughts and communication with the Lord as I'm running and praying and dreaming out. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where as, as I was kind of running, I, I was developing kind of a new habit, something that I thought, you know, I'm going to try something a little bit different here. Um, because as you know, most of you know, uh, I've been in kind of a very busy season for the last, you know, year or so. Um, but before that I was able to be in, in shape, um, really well it, it, back in, you know, the middle of 2018 and running all the time. And the thing that, that is a little bit frustrating about getting back in shape and getting running. You have an expectation of like where you're supposed to be, right? You're like, I, I grew up playing soccer. I grew up running all the time. It was like, okay, yeah. Like running a ton of miles being a really fast runner, not a big deal. Super easy. Like, like I have an expectation of what it was. And so coming back to that, I was able to, um, learn to overcome some obstacles along the way. But like right now, like I'm not in the shape I was that I, you know, a year ago, you know, or a year and a half ago. And so I've kind of started to get back on the run train while, um, while I've had some time here. But something that I wanted to make a goal this particular time, as opposed to uh, the previous times was, uh, in, in order to like not get discouraged was to not worry about getting in a certain amount of miles, and not to worry about getting in a certain amount of time. Uh, but what I decided to focus on really was my heart rate. To, as I had uh, my watch, the point of going on the run isn't to be fast, it's to get my cardio system uh, to a place where it's working in a proper way, it's, it's elevated enough uh, to where it's engaged. And I can say, okay, well, it was, you know, I'm, I'm keeping it in a certain range and going for a certain period of time. But the time is not as important as how much my heart rate is up, right? And so as I thought about this, 
You know, I thought this is a great, this is a great, you know, word for us all. Because I think a lot of times, you know, as, as you look at, um, you know, maybe in a practical sense, your running life right now, your exercise life right now, right? As I said, the point is to get your heart connected and to have it start working hard. Uh, and so as if you were to start out being a runner today, I would say as a result of kind of this experience and stuff, the most important thing is not for how long you go or how fast you are, but it's to get your heart within heart rate within a certain range because you want it to be moving at a certain pace. You want it to be working and it will get, it will um, get stronger and stronger over time. But as I, as I thought about this, I thought, you know, this really compares well to our spiritual condition. Because a lot of us kind of jump out the gate and we say, you know, well, I, I've been doing good. I've been, I've been working hard. I've been moving, uh, moving along in the, in the Christian life. And, uh, you know, I've got out so fast, so far in front. And, you know, I, I've, got a, I've got a good pace. But if you are, um, are out so far in front, but your heart's not engaged, it's not really, it's not really helpful right? You could be someone who's really fast, but if your heart isn't still coming to the, to the same level of work, if it's not getting to that place, then it's not going to bring the same level of, um, uh, of usefulness as it would uh, if it was working hard. And as I thought about this, you know, I thought this really applies to uh, the scriptures because it tells us in Deuteronomy chapter six, in the very beginning of the book, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Right, and then he continues in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse six, and says, "And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart." The emphasis is that the heart needs to be connected; it needs to be engaged. That's how we check our progress. That's how we know that we're doing well. It's not about how fast you're going. It's not how, about how many people are in, are out in front of you. People have been walking with the Lord for longer than you. That they are more fit than you. Uh, it's that. Everyone who is a part of the family of God has to have their heart engaged, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. He has given us these commands that shall be on our heart, right? And this was, was brought about through the work of Christ. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with the pure water, right? He goes on, Paul, or Paul writes in Romans chapter six, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So what Paul tells us is that, again, it's important to have your heart engaged. It doesn't really matter uh, how far along you are in your journey. It doesn't really matter how long you've been a disciple of Christ, none of that matters. What matters is that your heart is engaged, that you are pursuing Christ, right? Because there are times, you know, I think we all have where we get up and we go through the day and, you know, we just kind of feel like, you know, well, my, my heart's not in it. I'm not in it. I'm not, I'm not being activated. Like, I don't, I don't really feel like I, I know what's going on. I don't really feel like I, care. I don't not, I'm having a, a hard time, difficulty with this. And those are things that we experience because we are in the process of sanctification. But what the scriptures tell us is that then we need to take that feeling 
And we need to come to the scriptures because it helps us understand how to get our heart right. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, we read this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Right? Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the word of God pierces us. It helps us to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So if you are in a place where you're saying like, I don't really feel engaged, the place you need to go is to the scriptures. The place you need to go is to come and read the Bible, right? And let the word of God discern your thoughts and intentions within your heart. You need to come and be shaped by the truth of scripture that will help us understand how we then ought to respond to God. And when we do that, when we understand that we're not going to be able to shape that ourselves, when we're not going to be able to change ourselves, then we can trust that God will, in fact, do that through his word as he said he would, right? It, it does that work of surgery, <clears throat> right? It, it, um, it comes in and, and pierces right to that point where we are being stubborn, where we are being obstinate, where we are wrestling and fighting against God. And when we spend time in his word, he, he just gets right to that, to that spot and helps us overcome that. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, it also is something, a way that, um, that we use the scriptures to help each other discern those things, right? This is why we uh, always advise each other from the scriptures, because we can see with perspective how the scriptures need to pierce through your heart to the argument, to find out how the Lord is, needs to work in, uh, in your life or in my life. And when we do that, then we are able to uh, circle back to what we talked about on Friday night, right? Circle back to that same passage that's kind of been bouncing around in my mind, Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, you can only not lean on your own understanding if you have let the word of God discern the thoughts and intentions of your heart. And then you can trust in the Lord, right? You can only do that if you've come to the scriptures, if you've trusted in him. Verse six, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight, right? So acknowledge him, he will do the directing. And then it continues in verse seven with this, be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, right? So what it's saying there is to fear the Lord is to turn away from evil and not be wise in your own eyes, right? If you're not engaged with the Lord, if your heart is not engaged with the Lord, then you're going to turn away from evil. If your heart's not engaged in the Lord, then you're going to think that you're wise in your own eyes, that you have the best ideas, the best thoughts. But we need the scriptures to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart. And so Paul makes this emphasis for the Philippians, we've got to pursue these things together, standing side by side with one mind in unity, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, that we're pursuing this together. We need to be people who are engaged in heart. That's what he's calling the Philippians to. You can't just be on the sidelines. You can't just be saying, okay, well, it's kind of but he's calling them to be engaged. And there's a reason why, because they are at the, the road ahead is one in which they will experience hardship and trial and suffering. He continues in verse 28, and he says this, and not frightened by anything in your opponents. 
this is a clear of their destruction of your salvation and that from God. So he kind of trots out this <clears throat> phrasing here um, that is used in literature of their time, um, not frightened in anything by your opponents. It's kind of used to describe um, like startling and frightening someone on, on, on the battlefield uh, that you wouldn't be experienced that, that you wouldn't be intimidated in any way is kind of getting at here. His expectation for the Philippians is, and for us is that we shouldn't run from any battle. There's no point of retreat, that we're not going to back down from any attack. We're not going to compromise or concede the gospel in any way. As the enemy moves forward against us, we are going to stand firm with our feet planted upon the rock of Christ. And the Christians in Philippi, they're facing the same opposition uh, from Rome as Paul's facing in, in his jail cell. Like his, Paul has his own commitment to Christ. He's experiencing a similar hardship. And he says here, this difficulty that you're experiencing, right? Don't be discouraged by it because it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, right? So the commitment for them to stand firm, to strive together, it's a sign. Their unity in Christ is a sign. It's indicating something. It's saying here, it's a two-way sign in this case, Paul says. It's one in which indicates uh, to the world that uh, as Christians are faithful, as they're standing firm in this, as Christians are making this claim that if you're not trusting in Christ for salvation, that there is judgment at the end of that, that you're going to oppose God, then uh, you're going to experience this destruction. But for Christians who are experiencing hardship, when they are being persecuted for Christ's sake, they can know that they are receiving the kingdom of God. It's a kind of a double sign that exists here. Similar to, um, similar to how the world perceives uh, the message of the cross, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, right? He says there, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God, right? So the message of the cross is a sign again. The gospel is a sign. To those who are outside the church, it is a message of foolishness. Like, what stupidity, right? But then within the church, we see that it is, it is a message of salvation. It is a message of the power of God. It is a message of God's love for his people. And so Paul tells the Philippians, as you, uh, as you go through this circumstance, or as you are in a season of, of hardship, as you are in a season of suffering, right? This is a sign both for those outside the church and for you, right? And this is how he continues in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. <clears throat> so this salvation has been given to uh, the Philippians, it's been given to us in Christ. And along with that, he has granted it to us, right? That word there that he he is speaking of, it speaks uh, more deeply to this idea of being, uh, of it being freely given or given um, graciously, not something that we've earned, but that has been bestowed upon us, not by our own merit, not by our own work, but by 
generosity, his grace that he's shown us. We've all been given this opportunity to trust Christ for salvation. And as we do so, uh, it's a gift of God to experience that because we will then have the ability to suffer for his sake, which is also a gift of grace, right? Now, consider this. We live in a broken world. We live in a, in a world where things are messed up, where sin is. And it's God's grace that he has given us uh, this opportunity to suffer for Christ because it says that our, our hardship, our trials, our difficulty have a purpose, right? For those who aren't Christians, they don't have a way to make sense of suffering. Why are these things happening in the world? Why, are, why is there brokenness? They don't understand uh, that sin is the th- that has caused these issues in our lives. They don't understand that there can be a way for us to have the fullness of the presence of God in the midst of difficulties, right? We are navigating difficulties and hardships and trials, but yet we are given everything that we need in Christ to move through these things. If you are going to experience difficulties and hardships, but yet you don't have tools to have that, yeah, that is extremely difficult, extremely hard. But the truth of the gospel is, is that God makes his, himself available to all people, that all who call, call upon the name will be saved, not withholding himself from anybody. The only people that are keeping themselves from God are themselves. They're the ones who are not taking advantage of the free opportunity that God has given. And so he calls us into this season of suffering, into this difficulty, into this hardship, but yet then equips us and gives us tools that not everybody is going to have. Only Christians will have these because we belong to him. And there's a point as we move through these hardships, as we move through these difficulties. And so um, Paul says here, as the Philippians suffer, as they move through a season of difficulties, they're citizens of heaven that live out this uh, live out their lives in Philippi, their conduct should be worthy of the gospel, that they should be reflecting the truth of the gospel. They shouldn't be indiscernible, indiscernible from the, Philippian, uh, the rest of the Philippians who live in, in that city. But the Christian Philippians ought to have a distinct aroma to them that they should uh, publicly identify with Christ uh, so that they can survive, that they can um, reflect their citizenship in heaven. And Paul reminds them, like, you know, you guys aren't the only ones who are experiencing that, that he also is experiencing that. He says that I'm engaged in the same conflict. I'm dealing with the same thing that you had and now here that I still have. Now, as he, as he writes this, remember, he's writing to the, to the Philippians. And so he says, I'm, I've been going through a hardship also. It's one that you saw that you originally witnessed um, and what we look at, when we look at the scriptures, what we see is probably that this is something that he was remarking upon in his letter to the Thessalonians in first Thessalonians chapter two. Uh, he says this, uh, but, but, uh, though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So it seems like there was a time where Paul was in Philippi and maybe the people of the city of Philippi, uh, were, were opposing him there and he had suffered at their hands so much that he wanted to indicate to the Thessalonians that uh, he had been treated shamefully by the people there. Uh, It wasn't the church, but it was probably the people of that city. And he's still experiencing that same form of opposition. 
Um, because remember what Paul has been proclaiming in Philippi and what he's been, what he continues to proclaim is a gospel that stands in opposition to Rome, right? In this culture, in this context, Jesus is Lord. For the Romans, Caesar is God. Caesar is Lord. He is the one that you would give your ultimate allegiance to. This is what was required of the citizens of Rome. But Paul says there's a greater recognition, a greater requirement for Christians. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the one who rescues us. And so this call that he's put upon them, he says, stand firm in that belief. Stand firm. Stand united. Stand together. Right? Make sure, Philippians, that your heart is engaged. Make sure that you're checking yourself. Make sure that you are in the battle together, standing side by side. Right? And this is the same message for all of us. It's easy for us to find something else to take over our lives that's going to continue to rule us, to master us. Right? It could be your fear over our kind of current circumstance that we're in. Like you, maybe you don't, you're really, really, really worried about um, your physical health, right? Right? Is your, is your health something that is your Lord? Is it your financial circumstances where your finances are our Lord? Is it your reputation, right? That you don't want to be someone who is perceived in a certain way by your colleagues or by your friends or by your family. Your reputation is Lord, right? There could be a good number of things, anything that, that masters us, that causes us to respond out of serving that we become enslaved to. But Paul says, those things aren't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is greater. He's greater than, he, and he's the only source that we're going to have for our health. He's the only one who oversees our body. Our maker, our creator is God. He is the only one who oversees all of our financial situation. Our finances are not secure in our bank accounts or our job opportunities, but they're secure in Christ being our provider. He is Lord over our reputations because we have died and we've been hidden with Christ and God. And so uh, he has fully known us all the things that we have ever done, all the things that we will ever do that our offenses against him, that we've sinned against him, that caused him to go to the cross. He is aware of all of those things. And uh, we don't have, like, he's not surprised by any of them. And so we can be fully known and yet fully loved by him, right? And so then as a result, our reputation, we don't have to worry about that because our, our um, you know, the person who would exact the most amount of judgment upon us already knows us fully. We can already have that safety and security with Christ. And so this allows us to make that declaration that Jesus is Lord, that we don't have to be controlled by any of these other things, that no matter what we're going through, no matter what hardship, no matter what circumstance, no matter what you're facing, if Jesus is Lord, then nothing else can be Lord. Nothing else can be controlling you. Nothing else can be shaping you. We don't want it to because those things don't have any control over the outcome of our life, of what uh, of how we will move through life, move through hardship, move through trials with joy. Only Jesus does. He is the only source of joy. He is the only good that we can experience, and he's the only provider of good in our life. He's the only one that can meet that need at the deepest level. We can try to fill it with all sorts of other things, but they're just fake. They're knockoffs, 
and they, they leave us wanting something else. They leave us searching for more. They leave us wanting to pursue other things or to, to go back and go back, go back, go back to that same spot to get more. But Jesus said that he is a fountain of life, water that will not allow you to thirst again. You will never thirst again, he said. You will have it and be satisfied. You don't have to go and pursue other things, but you can find this attitude of, of acceptance in him and his work at the cross as he's invited us near and dear to him. And so the question for us this morning is, is your heart engaged? It doesn't matter if you're very far along. It doesn't matter if you're out of shape. All that matters is that your heart is engaged and you just need to engage your heart every day. If you are somebody who is worried about sprinting out to the front of the pack and looking like you're really in shape, that's not important. What's important is, is your heart engaged. If you're somebody who's so out of shape that you don't even want to get started because it's kind of like, well, you know, I've been behind for so long and I've been dragging my feet for so long that I couldn't possibly, you know, get anywhere. And it's kind of just embarrassing. It doesn't really matter because all that matters is your heart engaged. The most important thing, whether you're somebody who wants to sprint to the front of the pack or whether you want to be somebody who's just getting off the couch for the first time is, is your heart engaged? You've got to get it engaged. You've got to come and connect with Christ and say, you are the only source of life. Because the only thing that matters there is that your heart is drawing near to him. And when you draw near to him, then he will change you. He will shape you. He will put you in place where you continue upon that path. And let me tell you, it doesn't ever matter if you get, if you get faster. That's not the goal. You will get faster, but that's not the goal. Right? The goal every single time is to make sure that your heart is engaged. It doesn't matter for how long you've been going. Is your heart engaged? That's what we see in the thief upon the cross, right? Remember Jesus went to the cross. He's there. He's got one guy on the left, one guy on the right. And they both begin to mock him. Remember we talked about that on Good Friday? They both begin to mock him. But then as this person uh, to, uh, to his uh, side begins to see how Jesus responds to those who are doing evil against him, as he begins to hear and witness the mocking of the crowd and hear Jesus' responses, then his heart begins to be engaged. And then at some point, he says, Lord, remember me when you've come into your kingdom, right? All of a sudden, he's there and his heart is engaged. And Jesus doesn't say, well, I hope you can run for a little bit longer. I hope you can make it a little bit longer. I hope you can get fast here because your life's about to end. All that matters is that his heart is engaged, that he's there. And then Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, right? It's a matter of your heart being engaged, not how long you've been going, not how fast you are. Get engaged. Move along in your journey. Pursue Christ. Do not waver. Don't go alone. Run in a pack with the rest of us. We're all here to stand side by side with you, to be in unity together, right? You get yourself in trouble when you try to go on your own. Don't go on your own. Go together. And we will all respond to the unity that Paul calls us to here in the book of Philippians and the joy that we can have together in Christ. Let's pray. We'll respond. Lord, we are thankful for your word. Um, we pray that you would meet us now as we um, respond to you in song, as we respond in, um, in prayer and ask you to be at work in our lives in this moment where we are, have a lack of engagement. Maybe, you know, we woke up all this morning and we're like, I'm, my heart's not in it. 
I just don't really care. Right. But we want to bring that to you. And we just want to tell you like, we're having a hard time. Our heart's not in it. And so Lord, would you help us? Would you engage our heart? Would you help us to draw near to you? Because you are a good and kind and loving savior who has made a way for us to be connected to you, to be engaged. And Lord, we want your heart to penetrate, or we want your word to penetrate our heart. We want you to search us and know us. We want it to, to divide our soul, to discern the thoughts and intentions of our heart, where we so often lie to ourselves, where we try to lie to you, Lord, but no, nothing can be hidden from your sight, that you know all, that you see all, that you have such a wonderful insight into us. You know us fully, but yet love us fully. There can be no one as good as you. There can be no one who gives us the good that you want to give us. No one can even come close. And so, Lord, we want to rejoice in your generosity and your grace and the opportunity that you've given to us not just to draw near to you, but that we could have unity with others and we could rejoice and we could celebrate about who you are. And so Lord, be glorified in us as we endeavor to do this, empower us by your Holy Spirit so we can uh, be successful in obeying you. We want to obey you. Give us that desire. Give us the ability to do so. Uh, and Lord, we look forward to bearing fruit for your name and to giving you glory. So Lord, be at work in your people and engage our heart. I love you. Amen.